Section number two of The Rover, volume one, number three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, volume one, number three. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section number two. Saint-Croix, a tale of the days of terror. Monsieur Saint-Croix was a strange compound of the misanthrope and philanthropist, the miser and the fop, fermented by a strong leaven of the irritability and waywardness of insanity. And this man dwelt, three years ago, and probably still dwells, in the most profound seclusion, though in a fashionable street in the gayest quarter of Paris, where thousands are thronging daily past his abode of misery, unconscious of the existence of such a being. The stamp of nobility was upon his lofty brow, and though age, or perhaps sorrow, had silvered his hair, it had neither bent his tall and finely proportioned figure, nor wrinkled the face which, in youth, must have been preeminently handsome. We became intimate. Our daily conversations between my window and his garden appeared not less agreeable to my neighbor than to myself. One great reason for the kindness he invariably manifested toward me, and the interest he took in my welfare, was, I verily believe, that in whatever society or place I met him, whether with a gay party in the Louvre, where it was his daily habit to walk in the winter, for the benefit of the fires which never gladdened his home, or in the crowded malls of the Tuileries and Boulevard, I invariably acknowledged the acquaintance of my venerable friend with a courteous salutation. After an acquaintance of several months, I was agreeably surprised by a request from the old man to visit him, an honor never anticipated, for not once in a year was a human being known to have been admitted into his mysterious dwelling. I was shown into a square, oak-floored room, with two windows looking toward the street, and two toward the garden. The shutters of the former were closed, and the cobwebs and dirt which had been accumulating for years upon the latter dimmed the bright light of the glorious sky without. There were faded portraits of his ancestors, in flowing wigs and glittering breastplates, hanging round the walls which the recluse pointed out with manifest pride. But there was one object which excited my curiosity more than all the rest. Above the fireplace, supported by a broken fork on one side and a rusty nail on the other, hung a faded silk window curtain, and though in spite of all my hints Monsieur Saint-Croix had forborne to raise it, I felt certain I could distinctly trace the outline of a large picture-frame beneath. I had been struck by the agitated expression of his countenance when I alluded to this curtained department of the wall, and an opportunity afforded by the absence of my host was too tempting to be lost. I had lifted a corner of the silken veil, and had scarcely time to perceive beneath the portrait of a young and lovely female in the dress of a Carmelite nun, whose full dark eyes, as they met my gaze, beamed with more of tenderness than devotion, ere the returning footsteps of Monsieur Saint-Croix were audible in the passage. I dropped the curtain, and saw it no more. 
I often discerned Saint-Croix afterward, as I returned home late from the Champs-Élysées or the Boulevard, seated at an open upper window, upon a dirty striped pillow, reading in the moonlight, and our conversations from his garden were continued without interruption till my return to England. I know not wherefore, but the old man grew attached to me as to a child, and to my great surprise, the day before my departure, I saw him hastily crossing the court of our little hotel, and in another moment he entered, unannounced, into the salon where I sat. He held a scroll of papers in his hand, but, as usual, he was without a hat. "'My young friend,' he said, and he smiled, though tears were in his eyes, "'you are about to depart, and with God's pleasure I shall not be long here. You have been kind to a poor, desolate old man, and I thank you. You have not mocked my infirmities like the rest of the world. You have been indulgent to them, though you know not their cause.' It is time you should learn the dark events which made me what I am, a scorn and a laughing-stock to fools. You have spoken with a voice of kindness to my broken spirit. It was long since I had heard such tones from any human being, and they were very sweet. In your own land you will read these, he continued, giving me the roll of papers he held, and pressing both my hands convulsively between his as he did so. You will learn there the fatal tale I have not power to relate, which, thank God, I sometimes forget. My mind is not what it was, but I have had cause for madness. I shall miss you much, but it will be a pleasure to me to think that you will pity me when you know all, and that though you are far away, you sometimes offer up your prayers for a solitary and forsaken being who hath great need of them. He then darted from my presence even more abruptly than he entered. It was the last time I beheld him. The following narrative is extracted from his roll of papers. Narrative of Monsieur Saint-Croix. My father was one of the haute noblesse. It had been better for me if he had been a beggar. I should never then have been a slave to the leaden bondage of pride. Idleness would never have nourished the seeds of all the evil passions, which, wretched victim, I inherited from a long line of corrupted ancestry. They would have had no time to bud and blossom in the hotbed of sloth. I should have been compelled to labor for my daily bread. Hunger would have tamed my wandering thoughts, and I might have been a happy and an honest man. My father and mother lived as many other French couples do at the present day, and many more did then. They dwelt under the same roof, met seldom, but with perfect politeness on both sides, hated each other with all their hearts, and spoke of each other, whenever such a rare occurrence did take place, with the tenderest affection. Sentiment covers a multitude of sins. They had two sons, an elder brother and myself, who were born in the first two years of their marriage, but since that time no prospect of a family had ever existed. Alphonse, the firstborn, was destined for a military life, war being considered the only admissible profession for the eldest son of a Count a pair. I, who unluckily for myself, came into the world a year later, was, even before my birth, condemned to the church. In fact, there was nothing else for me. The chief part of my father's income was derived from places under government, and that died with him. 
his estates were inextricably involved by the dissipations of his youth and the vanity of his old age and at his death it would be incumbent on my brother to support his family dignity for the young count to do this upon nothing was as much as could reasonably be expected and my father prudently resolved to make the church provide for the rest of his progeny he had more than one rich benefice in his eye which he felt certain he had interest to procure and i was scarcely released from swaddling clothes before i went by the name of the little abbe to all appearance at the time this decision gave me many advantages for while my brother was left for many years entirely to the care of servants and at length transferred to that of an ignorant tutor who took care that he should learn little but how to ride dance dress and intrigue i was duly instructed by a learned churchman in greek latin and theological science but at the time i loathed such learning and it has since proved but useless furniture to an overburdened brain there never existed any affection between my brother and myself and as we grew older the coldness of our childhood deepened into actual hate the study of divinity had not tamed my spirit i was young ardent and full of hope and the little i had seen and heard of the world made me think it elysium perhaps the consciousness that i was condemned for swear it lent it redoubled lustre i regarded alphonse as the being who doomed me to be for ever debarred from its pleasures was it wonderful then that i detested him while the handsome person which i inherited from my mother made me the object of his envy and malevolence time wore away but although i assumed the dress of the priesthood and was subjected to all the discipline of the cloister my heart was not in the calling i incurred penances more than a dozen times a month for a reverence of manner and absence without leave i was condemned to fast on bread and water for thirty days on conviction of the heinous offence of having written a love-letter on the altar and then thrown it wrapped round a sou-piece over a wall to a young lady in a garden adjoining the seminary but all this severity did but drive the flame inward to corrode my heart and burst forth at a future period with renewed fury it could not still the imagination which flew forever from the page of learning and the empty ceremonies of religion to luxuriate in a forbidden world i was one with whom kindness might have done much though tyranny nothing but the reign of my oppressors was drawing fast to a close it was a time when a spirit of liberality and enquiry on every subject was spreading rapidly abroad and the old afraid of the insubordination of the young took the very way to drive them to rebellion opinions were no longer received upon trust even in cloistered walls many like myself detested the whole system of hypocrisy sloth and superstition of which we were made abettors and my feelings had numerous participators amongst my young companions who thought with me that the meanest toil in freedom would be preferable to the drudgery of fasting and prayer to which we were subjected there was one older than ourselves in the convent and better acquainted with what was passing in the world who encouraged our awakened ardour for a change of things he furnished us in secret with the forbidden works of voltaire rousseau and all whose daring spirits were gradually arousing our nation 
to shake off the chains of superstition and despotism under which they had lain benumbed for centuries. I was too young and too ardent to distinguish accurately what was false in these productions, but their eloquence fascinated my imagination, and I adopted every opinion as a truth which differed the most directly from all the dogmas I had been taught to believe. My own sacrifice to the shrine of my brother's greatness was, to me, sufficient argument in favor of equality, and by the time the states-general were convened at Versailles, there could not have been found in all France a more violent advocate of the rights of the people than Auguste Saint-Croix. Many of the clergy, under the influence of Abbé Suyez, and from a love of novelty, joined the Tiers-État, when that assumed the name of National Assembly. But their zeal for liberty was soon annihilated by the seizure of the church property and the suppression of all monastic establishments on the 13th February, 1790. It was not thus with myself. I felt like a slave whose chains had been miraculously struck off, or a corpse reawakened into life and bursting from the imprisonment of the grave. My father and brother had already fallen sacrifices to the fury of the ancient misused dependents of their house, while endeavoring to save their castle in Franche-Comte from plunder and destruction, and my mother, terrified by their fate, had escaped into Flanders. But my violent republican principles accorded well with the mania of the time, and though I could not recover my inheritance, I had no want of friends, who supplied my daily necessities, until fortune should reward my exertions in the cause of liberty. I became a member of one of the most violent of the clubs, an intimate with several members of the National Assembly, and a constant attendant on its debates. But amidst all my political enthusiasm, my appetite for pleasure was undiminished, and at length I had none to check me in its indulgence, while thousands emulated me in the pursuit. Men in those days appeared in a continual delirium. Murder was no more to them than the phantom of a dream. Tumults and bloodshed were in the streets one hour, and dancing and revelry the next. Even females might be seen tripping smilingly with their gallants to the public walks in the evening, over the sawdust sprinkled above the moist blood which had flowed from the morning's guillotine. It was like a time of pestilence when men eagerly plunge into the wildest dissipation to forget the uncertainty of life. But no terror operated with me. I was young, fearless of death, and looked on the revolution and its horrors as the noblest efforts of human wisdom and magnanimity. I loved pleasure for itself alone. It was a lovely summer evening toward the end of June when I set off with a party of friends in pursuit of this deluded deity to the little village of Onyere, situated below Montmartre, on the opposite side of the River Seine. It was the village fete, and even the troubles of the times failed to interrupt these simple festivities of my countrymen. Never shall I forget that evening. Yet why should I say so? I have forgotten it a thousand times, and would that I could forever. The sun was sinking bright and cloudlessly toward the western horizon, as we crossed the broad fields of La Planchette from the barrier Courcelles, and we lingered a while in our little boat on the Seine, to watch its golden beams reflected in the stream, 
and listened to the soft hum of festivities on its banks. It was the last time I ever experienced the consciousness of happiness. Dancing had already commenced when we reached the village green, and many happy groups were seated around the space left for the rustic performers, sharing their bottle of indifferent wine, and knocking their glasses together with jovial salutations. Black eyes without number were leveled at my companions and myself, as soon as we pushed our way through the moving crowd, and they were not long in choosing partners for the dance. I was no lover of the pastime, early education had made it awkward to me, and having no desire to exhibit before so large an audience, I sought amusement in the contemplation of the busy scene of happy faces around me. But my attention was soon absorbed by one object, immediately opposite to me and surrounded by a group of persons, who, though dressed with republican simplicity, were manifestly of the highest class, sat a young female of extraordinary beauty. She might be about nineteen. But why should I attempt to describe what no language nor limner's art could ever paint? Can it be that I survive to write thus of thee? Can it be that my mind can contemplate thy perfections without being lost in madness? Yes, she was perfection, and from the instant I beheld her on that village green, with the full light of the sinking sun irradiating her calm and gentle beauty, the conviction that she was so sunk deep in my heart. None but a madman could have doubted it for an instant. I was like one planet-stricken from the moment I beheld her. I could not remove my gaze. The crowd and their sports became alike invisible. Their sounds of mirth and the discord of their rustic music were equally inaudible to my ear. I saw only the lovely being before me. I heard only the magical sweetness of her voice when she occasionally addressed her companions. At length I thought she remarked my admiration, for when her eyes met mine for an instant, a deep color mounted to her temples, and she turned aside to speak to a gentleman near at hand. I would have given all I possessed at that moment to have been him whom she thus addressed and smiled upon, though he was old enough to have been my grandfather. The jokes of my friends on my abstraction at the end of the dance first aroused me from my trance, but it was not till another set was nearly formed that I remember the possibility of my obtaining the goddess of my idolatry as a partner. My hatred of dancing was instantly forgotten. I advanced toward the beautiful unknown with a palpitating heart, and in an agitated voice requested that honor. I was refused with the utmost politeness, but firmly and decidedly I was refused. There was nothing astonishing in this, for she had not danced during the evening with any, even of her own party, but I was offended, irritated, and annoyed. I was disappointed. In spite of my enthusiasm for liberty, the pride of my ancestry mounted in my heart, and I felt a haughty consciousness that if she had known who I was, I should not have been thus rejected though I thought that my personal advantages might have accepted me from the insult. By a strange chance I was at this instant recognized by a gentleman who had just joined the party, and in another moment I was formally introduced to Claudine and her father Monsieur de Langeron, the sieur of the village. He had known the elder members of my family well and long, and on an invitation to spend the remainder of the evening at his chateau, 
whither he was just retiring with his party, was politely given and joyfully accepted. His daughter said little, but that was so soft and gentle, as soon to dispel my displeasure, and her sweet smile was more expressive than words. Though dancing was renewed in the interior of the mansion, I observed she did not join in the amusement, nor did any one present invite her to do so. I was selfish enough no longer to regret it. Seated by her side, for a time I had nothing more to desire. The moon had replaced the glowing sun when I recrossed the Seine that night. But though the calm splendor of heaven was unbroken by a single cloud, the tranquillity of my mind was gone. Thenceforward I became a daily visitor at Anières, but no one seemed to regard or remark my attention to Claudine, though we were almost constantly together and frequently alone. She had no mother, and an old aunt, her only female companion, unlike most of her age and sex, seemed to entertain not the least suspicion of the consequence of our intercourse. She left us unmolested, to take long walks by the retired banks of the river, and to sit for hours on the terraced garden of the chateau. Such an intimacy added burning fuel to my passion, and as Claudine gradually lost her timidity in my presence, every day disclosed to me the additional charms of her unsullied mind. Though unaware of it herself, it was impossible for me to remain long unconscious that she loved me with all the intensity of a first affection. I never uttered a syllable that I did not meet her glance of approbation. I never departed that tears did not stand in her eyes, nor was met without blushes on my return. Every thought, feeling, hope, and fear of the unfortunate girl were mine forever. Selfish even in my love, I saw and exalted in all this before I disclosed the secret of my affection. We were seated on the margin of the river, nearly on the same spot where I landed on the first evening I beheld her, and the sun was shining in the western sky as brightly as then, when I whispered the story of my passion in her ear. Her hand trembled violently in mine as she listened, but in vain did I beseech her to reply to my passionate declamations. She gave no answer, but by tears. I entreated her by every tender appellation to give me some token of her love, but she neither moved nor spoke. She even ceased to weep. She did not withdraw her hand from mine, but it grew icy chill. Her head dropped upon her bosom, and she fell back, lifeless in my arms. I was horror-stricken, and it was some time before I recovered sufficient presence of mind to lay her gently on the grass, while I brought water from the neighboring river to bathe her hands and forehead. Slowly, and after a long interval, she revived, but no sooner was she conscious that my encircling arms were around her than she shrunk from me with convulsive horror and struggled to arise. She was too feeble to accomplish her purpose, and wildly and passionately I detained her, as I entreated her to disclose by what fatal chance I had become the object of her hatred. My hatred? Dear Auguste? Would that you were! She murmured in almost inaudible accents, and then fixing her full dark eyes upon me for an instant, before she buried her face in her hands, she added in a voice tremulous from excess of emotion, Is it possible? You have yet to learn that I am a nun? I started as these fearful words fell dull and cold upon my ear, 
but it was long before I made any reply. Early prejudices arose like phantoms before my sight. I remembered for the first time since our intercourse that I, too, was bound by a sacred vow to celibacy, and for a time I beheld in these trammels of bigotry the fiat of interminable misfortune. But vows, whether sacred or profane, are feeble against the tempest of passion, and when the mind is once resigned to its despotic influence, principles and prejudices are equally swept away by the whirlwind. I did not long yield to despair. The new doctrines I had adopted in casting aside my priest's frock, though for a moment forgotten in the turbulence of exciting feeling, soon came to my assistance. According to these, Claudine and I were as free as, at the moment of our birth, to follow the guidance of the feelings which nature had implanted in our hearts, and I endeavored to convince the innocent girl, with all the fervor and eloquence of which I was master, that she was no longer the bride of heaven, and that her vows had ceased to be binding when formally annulled by the National Assembly. The next day I returned again to the charge, and though she remained unconvinced, my vehemence silenced all opposition. I saw that she wavered between a sense of duty and the passionate feelings of her heart, and I redoubled the earnestness of my supplications. I painted wildly the horror and despair which awaited us, should she persist in her resolve, and doom us to an eternal separation, while I described with all the enthusiasm which the joyful hope inspired, the felicity attending our union. Gentle being, it was no sin of thine that thou didst yield to the burning words and delirious eloquence with which I tempted thee to thy ruin. Mine only was the guilt, and mine alone be the long, the never-ending punishment. That night she slept not beneath her father's roof. Trembling and breathless with agitation, I drew her towards the bank of the river, and though even at the last she struggled faintly to return, I heeded it not, and lifting her on board the little bark which had borne me from the opposite shore, I dipped my oars in the stream and rowed rapidly with the current towards Saint-Denis. We reached Paris before sunset, and to tranquilize the conscience of poor Claudine, as much as in my power, we were united before nightfall by such ceremonies as the National Assembly had thought proper to substitute for the ancient marriage rites. My passion thus gratified, I could for a time at least have been perfectly happy, but that I saw that Claudine was not so. She had acted under the influence of my overwhelming feelings, not her own, and her reason was never for a moment silenced. Though she complained not, she drooped under the sense of the mighty weight of guilt she had incurred, the bloom faded from her cheek, and the roundness of her form gradually wasted away. The state of the times, and the interest which my necessities compelled me to take in public affairs, caused me to be frequently absent from home. On my return I invariably found her in tears. She shrunk from all society but mine, she refused to join in every amusement, and each day deepened a gloom which all my efforts were unable to dispel. It was about this period that a young priest of the name of Berni, who had formerly studied in the same seminary with myself, claimed my protection from the persecution instituted against all his profession who refused to take the oaths prescribed by the assembly. 
before my change of principles there had been a great intimacy between us and i still liked the man whom i thought kind-hearted and generous though i disapproved his doctrine i did not hesitate therefore when his life was in danger to afford him a retreat even in my own house where from my own well-known republican principles he esteemed himself in perfect security domesticated under the same roof he was of course much in my wife's society with horror be it spoken i grew jealous of that man i frequently surprised him in close and earnest conversation with claudine i saw that she regarded his slightest wish with deference while i could not help imagining that her manner toward me became gradually more cold and estranged there was evidently a violent struggle at work in her breast her cheek by day burnt with a hectic of fever and at night amid her troubled and broken sleep long sighs frequently heaved from her bosom and i more than once heard her murmur in fearful accents the names of Bernie and myself suspicion once aroused in my headstrong nature it soon assumed the energy of truth and at length after a night little short of the tortures of the damned i arose resolved to expel the priest from the shelter of my roof as if to justify my worst imaginings he was already gone and claudine had likewise disappeared then did the fatal malady which for successive generations had asserted its black dominion over my race first take possession of my brain i swore i blasphemed i denounced the bitterest curses against the guilty pair had boiling lead been coursing through my veins it could not have surpassed my agony but there was a method in my madness when the first burst of my fury passed away i began sedulously to seek out the abode of the fugitives step by step i traced them as the bloodhound follows his prey but when i learned the secret of their hiding-place i was satisfied i did not intrude myself on their privacy for reproaches and upbraiding would have afforded no relief to my overburdened soul no i had a deeper a darker a more satisfying revenge in store coldly and calmly as a sleepwalker but with fiend-like pleasure i went and denounced claudine and her seducer to the revolutionary tribunal as aristocrats and nonconformists yes i delivered my innocent my confiding my adoring claudine to the blood-thirsty vengeance of those inhuman vampires and exulted in the deed i have an indistinct remembrance of lingering in the street till the minions of the law bore her forth in their arms to the carriage which was to convey her with the unfortunate bernie to the prison of the abbey and of struggling vainly to rescue her from their grasp but it is like the confusion of a dream the first circumstance which i clearly recollect after a fearful chasm of many days was the receipt of a letter the direction of which though written with a trembling hand i instantly recognized as my wife's writing and eager to snatch at anything which might prove the fallacy of the thoughts fast thronging on my brain i tore it wildly open it was dated from the prison to which i had doomed her but though thirty years have rolled their dark current above my head since that hour though every word has been since then like the sting of a serpent to my brain i would even now rather die than transcribe it it convinced me of her innocence and her love 
I gathered from its details that the reproaches of Bernie had deepened her repentance of our unholy union, till at length, guided by his advice, she had sacrificed the best affections of her heart at the shrine of imaginary duty, and torn herself from the only being she loved to expiate the guilt of that affection in the seclusion of a foreign convent. Poor victim, she prayed him, who had sacrificed her peace and her life to his diabolical passions, to use his influence to procure the liberation of herself and her holy director from their fearful prison. Let me briefly pass over the narrative of the day. I started up, flew to the tribunal of the commune, attested the innocence of the accused, and my intimacy with the chiefs of the Democrats sufficed to make my word a law, and procured for me without delay a warrant for the liberation of Claudine and the priest. I hurried with breathless speed along the street toward their prison, but crowds at every turning impeded my progress. Murder was already abroad in the city. It was the 2nd of September, 1792, that day which has fixed forever one of the blackest stains in the history of my country. As I passed the prisons of the Chatelet and La Force, I heard the groans and supplications of the dying, mingling fearfully with the demoniac yells of an infuriated mob. Women's screams arose wildly on the air, and blood came flowing past me down the channels of the streets. Everything betokened that the prisons were burst open, and their unfortunate inhabitants massacred by inhuman ruffians. Dark and fearful were the forebodings which thronged upon my mind, as on approaching the abbey the same sounds of tumult and murder burst upon my ear. I hurried on, in spite of every obstacle, with a velocity which only madness could have lent me, till I reached the front of the building, and there such a scene presented itself as my soul sickens to think on. The armed multitude of men and women of the lowest class resembled in their fury rather fiends than human beings, but I heeded them not, I sprung over the dying and the dead, I escaped from the grasp of the assassin, for there was yet hope that I might not be too late. And though I recognized the mangled body of Bernie amid a heap of slain, I relaxed nothing of my speed, for my wife, my adored Claudine, might yet survive his destruction. My suspense was soon at an end. Yes, I saw her, and yet I survived the sight. I saw her at a little distance. She was kneeling with clasped hands at the feet of an infuriated ruffian whose weapon was already at her breast. At that moment she recognized my cry of agony, sprang wildly on her feet, and called with an imploring voice upon my name. It was the last word she uttered. The steel struck her ere she could escape into my arms. It struck deeply and fatally, yet well for her. But for me, end of section two.